Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 12. The focus of our study this morning will be through chapter uh, through verse 14, but I'll read through verse 28. And Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be to you the beginning of months, shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to themselves every man a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too little for a lamb, then shall he and his neighbor next to his house take one according to the number of the souls. According to every man's eating, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it between the evenings. And they shall take of the blood and put it on the two side posts and on the lintel upon the houses in which they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roasted with fire. And unleavened bread with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat of it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted with fire its head with its legs and with its innards. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, but that which remains of it until the morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is Yahweh's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt in that night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from man even unto beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. And the blood shall be to you for a sign upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And there shall be no plague upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be for you a memorial. And you shall keep it a feast to Yahweh. Throughout your generations, you shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Even the first day you shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whoever eats a leavened thing from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be to you a holy convocation. And in the seventh day a holy convocation. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat. That only may be done by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day I have brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats that which is leavened, that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or one to whom is born in the land. Anything leavened you shall not eat. In all your habitations you shall eat unleavened bread. And Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Draw out and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and kill the Passover. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For Yahweh will pass through to smite the Egyptians. 
And when he sees the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this thing for an ordinance to you and to your sons forever. And it shall come to pass when you've come to the land that Yahweh will give to you, as he has promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall come to pass when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service that you shall say? It is the sacrifice of Yahweh's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. The people bowed the head and worshipped, and the children of Israel went and did as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is indeed near this day. And we thank you that you have seen fit to use the preaching of your word for the edification of your saints. We pray now that you would grant us strength, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand and perceive this, your word. Help us in the midst of weakness. Grant us encouragement, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Passover is easily one of the most well-known events in the Bible, a story that we remember from an early age and one that has profound implications into the life of Israel and even into the life of the church. We encounter the Passover on plenty of occasions in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, and there are Passover elements or themes that we find in the various epistles. And I would imagine that just about everyone here has a fairly basic understanding of the Passover and and what took place. And you could probably give a decent summary of what happened and its significance. Well, with such an important event, we aren't surprised to find that there's quite a bit of time and attention given to it. And that the the text uh, before us is is quite dense, that that it's heavy with theology and implications, not only for Israel then but also for God's people now. And that being the case, we're not going to be in a hurry to to get through, but we'll simply cover the first 14 verses of chapter 12 this morning. Now, granted, this means artificially breaking up the text somewhat. A case can be made for examining verses 1 through 20 as a section, and then verses 21 to 28, given the speeches that are made to certain audiences. But there's also a bit of a change of direction in verse 15 and following regarding the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which allows for us to take verses 1 through 14 as a manageable portion on its own. You may recall that chapter 11 served as a bridge of sorts between the first nine plagues, three cycles of three that we studied over the course of chapter 7 through 10. And now the tenth and final plague and the death of the firstborn that's promised in chapter 11, verse 4 and following. And the, and the separation, the distinction that Yahweh makes between Israel and Egypt. How's the distinction achieved? Through a sacrificial substitute, through blood. And so what we have in chapter 12 is an expansion on how that separation is achieved in the instructions that are given regarding the Passover. Now, as we come to verse 1, we should probably understand that chronologically these instructions came to Moses at an earlier point because of what they entail. The beginning of verse 1 can be rendered, And Yahweh had said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, Also, the fact that there's the specific mention of the land of Egypt can give the impression of this being written in the future, but is a reflection on this past event. 
you know, where else were Moses and Aaron but in Egypt? And yet the, the theme of the land of Egypt that's been so prevalent throughout is suddenly woven into the story again. Furthermore, what we have in part of the instructions that are given are details that only apply to this first Passover, to this first time. And that's helpful to recognize because in future Passover celebrations, the rite of blood on the doorposts and lintel isn't repeated. Nor does everyone dress for departure. You know, so some of the dynamics are going to change. You know, what was, uh, what was the posture of Jesus and the disciples in the upper room? They were reclining at table. Of course, Jesus will make his own exodus from Jerusalem, but that's a different study for another day, but you get the point. So then, what does Yahweh say to Moses and Aaron? Verse 2. This month, this new moon to you, is the beginning of months or new moons. First, thus to you for the month of the year. First of all, it's good for you to know that the word for month can also be rendered new moon. The, the word means the same thing. Now, we would consider it a new moon when you can't see the moon or barely can see its outline. In the ancient world, the new moon would have been the first sliver that would look like a thin sickle in the sky. Second, Yahweh is giving some clear calendar instructions and setting a new calendar for the people to follow. Now, basically, what we have here is the establishing of a liturgical calendar versus a civil or national calendar. And this is something that we're all quite familiar with in our own experiences. And, of course, we have our, our national calendar, our annual calendar that goes from January 1st to December 31st. But then many of us are quite familiar with an academic calendar or a school year, usually starting in August and ending in May. Businesses or other organizations may follow a fiscal year or a calendar that goes perhaps from July 1st to June 30th or something like that. So to have multiple calendars at work isn't unusual. And for Israel, the first month of the national year was Tishri, which was in autumn at harvest sometime in September to October. Passover takes place in the month of Abib, which would fall sometime in March to April in what we consider to be the spring. And that's a fitting time for a new beginning, isn't it? Even as this telescopes forward to our celebration of resurrection and Easter. In Genesis 18.10, in regard to the birth of Isaac, Yahweh tells Abraham, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Well, what's the time of life? Well, it's spring. So it can be helpful for us to pay attention to some of these calendar details when we encounter them in Scripture, and particularly in reference to the Passover in the New Testament. You know, we're, we're familiar with Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection taking place before and after the Passover, respectively. But we also read about the Passover taking place in John 2, shortly after Jesus performs his first miracle of changing water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. See, there's something new about the kingdom that Jesus is ushering into the world. Now, one other caveat about calendars to keep in mind is that this liturgical calendar is based on moon cycles. It's basically a monthly calendar and doesn't correspond nice and neatly to an annual calendar. Still more, we obviously have our weekly calendar of seven days as God established when he created the world. And that's firmly set. But in the universe that he's made, there isn't a simple correspondence of weeks to months to years. You know, we don't have four weeks of seven days each month all perfectly corresponding to the cycles of the month that all automatically results in 12 months of the year. 
things are more complicated than that. Even as we have a leap year every four years. And months vary in their numbers of days. Which all this really rightly reflects God's own complexity. This is why it can also be challenging to calculate backwards into history and try to figure out specific timelines according to how we mark time because of these competing forms of calendar, calendar keeping and so forth. Verses 3 and 4. Yahweh continues. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, In the tenth of this month they shall take to them a man, one of a flock to a father's houses, one of a flock to a house. And if the house is too small for one of a flock... He shall take it and his neighbor the nearest to his house according to the number of souls. A man according to what his mouth can eat reckon unto the one of a flock. A couple of things first. First, a uh, couple of things first. The, the English renders that, uh, he renders the word a lamb was to be taken. But the word literally more, uh, more literally means one from a flock. And it's worth noting this because in verse 5, Yahweh says that they're free to choose from the sheep or from the goats. A lamb is a sheep and not a goat. But because of what we're accustomed to hearing and thinking about the Passover, our brain, uh, our brains are likely to default to lamb, but at least now we know better, even if it doesn't stick with us. Of course, we refer to a herd of goats and not a flock of goats, but the Hebrew language isn't being that precise. And verses 3 and 4 begin to establish an important precedent in regard to the consumption of the lamb or goat that's further expanded upon in verse 10. But we need to notice something else first. How does Yahweh refer to Israel as the congregation of Israel? This is the first time the sons of Israel are referred to as a community in this fashion in Exodus. And it's not insignificant, particularly given the fact that that a new worship practice is being established along with this new calendar. In another sense, we can say that the Passover results in the creation of Israel as the people of Yahweh in a new way not yet known in the history of the Hebrews as they will have a common identity around God's redeeming work. But notice another detail. If a man's house is too small, not the physical home, but the number of souls in it in order to consume the lamb or goat, what's he supposed to do? Go to his nearest neighbor. He's not told to go out and seek his other blood relatives or extended family. Just the household, that's the closest. That's not an insignificant point because whom does Moses call together in order to give the instructions regarding the Passover in verse 21? The elders of Israel. So he doesn't call all the heads of the households which wouldn't have been feasible anyway, but he calls those men who represent the rest of the people. Of course, the organization of Israel takes even more precision later in Exodus, but there's, there's nothing clannish about the instructions that are imparted here. A basic definition of, for a household is found in Genesis 2.24, with Moses clearly teaching after the wedding of Adam and Eve. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man leaves his father and mother because he's now his own man, his own household. He's no longer under daddy's authority. Also notice another implication of going to the nearest neighbor to share this meal. The congregation of Israel, the church community, takes precedent over the extended family, those who would be blood relatives. By way of analogy, if we were celebrating the Passover today according to this pattern and and Brett and Sophie determined 
that they couldn't eat a whole lamb between the two of them. Well, then they'd, they'd come to the Thackers or the Pittmans or maybe the Hollands to celebrate Passover because one of us would be the nearest neighbor. You know, they wouldn't go to either of their respective parents' homes for Passover, even though neither of them lived that far away, or even if they preferred their company, uh, the company of their family. But the, the relationship in regard to the community of God's people is what would take a priority. Now, clearly, some planning is needed to take place, figuring out how much your household can eat, and then coordinate, coordinate, uh, coordinate, uh, coordinate, coordinating that uh, accordingly to the souls present, which, of course, would have included the children. But, you know, Israel had a few days to figure that out. Verse 5. One from a flock complete, a male, a son, one year to be for you from the sheep or from the goats for you to take. As noted uh, moments ago, the Israelites had a choice of lamb or goat for the meal. But what are some of the other requirements? Well, it had to be complete or without blemish. It couldn't have any defects and it had to be male. That's not insignificant. Why male? Well, because it's representative as a spokesman of God, as it were. The ascension offering is also exclusively male for similar reasons. Other offerings can be female, likely conveying more bridal imagery in some form or fashion. But obviously, if it's male, then it's a son, which the text is explicit to mention as well. But recall that lambs or goats will serve as representative sons. Sons of Israel will also be killed at Passover, but there'll be lambs or goats slain for the meal and not their firstborn, as will be the case for the Egyptians. And then the lamb or goat has to be a year old. Now, why one year? Well, it, it would be grown, but it's still young. Uh, it's still in the time of youth. And uh, as one theologian posits, there may be a connection back to Genesis 8.21 when Yahweh tells Noah that he will never again allow evil to mature. And we might wonder a little bit about that with all the evil we see in our society and world today. But our lifespan is so much shorter than what we read about in the early chapters of Genesis. Now, it could be that things are more concentrated now, but evil is not really allowed to mature in the same way as it was before the flood. You know, the, the bad guys don't have hundreds of years to, to do their scheming and become more evil. And as a related aside, what day of the month were the Israelites to take one from the flock? Well, the, the tenth day. Now, the tenth day is the third day of the second week of the month. If we're keeping with our kind of this pattern of what we've established so far. So a third day is still in the first part of the week, which means the week is still young. And this raises some other interesting connections between third days and tenth days. But if we connect three days with a time of youth, and even further with three years, what further implications are there for us to consider? Well, Jesus was 30 years old when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. And 30 is still relatively young in the Bible. How long did Jesus' ministry last after his baptism? Three, maybe three and a half years. So there's a sense that Jesus was cut off in the youth of his ministry. Furthermore, Jesus is the Passover lamb as the New Testament goes on to testify. And there are manifold implications to that. And I realize that we don't uh, as naturally think of numbers in this more symbolic way, but the Bible does, so it's good for us to train ourselves more along these lines. 
verse 6. And it will be to you to keep unto the 14th day of this month, and the whole congregation, congregation of Israel will slaughter it between the evenings. So the lamb or goat is to be selected on the 10th day. It's kept until the 14th day. And then what's to happen? Well, it's to be slaughtered or killed at twilight, literally between the evenings. When is that? After sunset, but before dark. Which means that death plagues... Death takes place at the end of the second week, 14th day. But then it's this translation, transition into the 15th day, which starts what? The third week, which is a new week. So let's do the math. 7 plus what equals 15? 8. And 8 is a number of new creation. It's a resurrection number. Or think about it this way. When did Pentecost take place in the Old Testament calendar? What does the name Pentecost itself indicate? 50. It took place 50 days after the sickle was first put to the grain. It's also referred to as the Feast of Weeks. How do you get to 50 in biblical math? And I promise this isn't new math. This is biblical math. How do you get to 50 in biblical math? 7 times 7, which equals 59, and then you plus 1. So you have seven times seven, weeks of weeks, plus one. So 15 and 50 correspond in this way. And what was Pentecost about? What's a third name for it? Feast of the Harvest or ingathering. So we associate Pentecost with Acts 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. But what does the presence of the Holy Spirit indicate? New life new creation, and the equipping of the apostles, the equipping of the church for what? To gather in the nations, to evangelize the world, to harvest the world, to participate in the work that's been given to us by Jesus, applying the gospel and his word in obedience to him. Also here in verse 6, we have another reference to Israel as a congregation, even the whole congregation, the whole assembly. And they are to act with ecclesiastical unity when they slaughter the lamb or goat at twilight. Of course, the celebration of Passover will change over time and become more centralized when Israel is established and has a place for worship, even as we later read in Leviticus and elsewhere, and of which we have hints here in chapter 12. But, but this is the procedure for this first, <coughs> for the Passover from Egypt. Verse 7. And they shall take from the blood and put it upon the two doorposts and upon the lintel, uh, upon the houses which they eat it in them. Now, what's indicated here? A display of blood. And where are they to put it? Well, on the, on the two doorposts, the vertical posts that hold up the door, and then on the, the lintel, which is the horizontal cross piece that connects the two posts, completing the doorway. So there's, there's no bloodshed on the threshold, on the ground where you walk in, perhaps indicating the blood of the sacrifice, Christ's blood, is not to be trampled upon. But recall where blood has already been displayed in Exodus. We have to go back to chapter 4 and that uh, somewhat strange text of the circumcision of Moses' son by his wife Zipporah. And where did she put the blood? Well, she put it on his shins or legs, which corresponds to the doorposts. Of course, having just been circumcised, there was blood in the third place as well, above his shins. So maybe there's some correspondence there for us to think about as well. But recall what Zipporah said about her son. You are a bridegroom, bridegroom of blood to me. 
which is for her to recognize that she's saved through the bloodshed of this son via circumcision, circumcision being a symbolic sacrifice. Now, building somewhat off of what we considered last week, how is Israel as a bride redeemed? How is she able to marry Yahweh at Sinai? Because of the blood of the Passover sacrifice, because of the blood of a son, a son of the herd shed for her. Now, let's think forward a little bit to the later chapters of Exodus. And what do we find in chapter 25 and following? Well, the instructions for building the tabernacle, a house. What's that house made out of? The riches of Egypt, the bridal gifts of silver, gold, and clothing, and the blessings with which Egypt sends out Israel from the land. See, the, the tabernacle is a bridal house for Yahweh and Israel, and that's where they'll meet. But what's an important aspect of the worship that takes place, place there, even at the dedication of the tabernacle? A display of blood, particularly upon the altar. The blood was displayed on the sides of the altar, the foundations, the, the legs of the altar, if you will. The worship at the tabernacle would have all of these connections, all these echoes back to Passover, would have these reminders of redemption built into the worship service. In Leviticus 1, with the ascension offering, what's the initial sequence that takes place? If his offering is an ascension offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the ascension offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. Then what happens next? And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar. That's at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So before the rite continues, before the sacrifice is cut up and burned on the altar, there's this display of blood on the sides, on the legs, the doorposts, if you will, of the altar. And for us as the church, what does this point us forward to? Who does this point forward to? Well, of course, it's Jesus. You know, he, he's the tabernacle. John says as much in the opening chapter of his gospel. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. There's a, we can make the case that Jesus is the house. Even more, he's the foundation. His blood was displayed. He's the son who was circumcised, the son whose blood was shed for us. And as we are in union with him, as we are part of his church, the bride, then we have refuge in him. You know, where is safety from God's judgment to be found? Under the blood of Christ. So you get into the son, into his blood. He's the sanctuary for the bride. Verses 8 to 10. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, fire roasted, and unleavened bread upon bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat from it raw or boiled from boiling in water, but fire roasted, its head unto its legs and unto its inward parts. And you, shall, and you shall not cause to remain from it unto morning, and if remaining from it unto morning, in fire you shall burn it. So explicit cooking instructions are given in verse 8. And the sacrifice had to be roasted by fire, and there was no eating of it raw or boiled. Uh, fire ties into the sacrificial aspect of the lamb or goat, and, and what does fire often represent in a sacrificial context? Well, the presence of God, particularly the Holy Spirit. So who's preparing the food? God is. And then he gives it to the participants at the meal. And there aren't to be any leftovers, but if there are, then they're to be burned up, which means God then consumes them. 
Also notice that there's no breaking or cutting of the sacrifice. But it's roasted whole and then eaten. No cutting or breaking it up. The Not cutting or breaking up is unique uh, here with the Passover, not like any of the other sacrifices. Most sacrifices are cut in half in some form or fashion, but that's not the case here. The cutting in those cases indicates... Uh, the curse of the covenant for breaking the covenant. You know, think about the sequence of events in, Abra- uh, in Genesis 15 and the covenant that Yahweh makes with Abraham. But we don't have that imagery here. No, the unity of the people is represented by the unity of the sacrifice. And all of it must be eaten. Otherwise, the unity of the meal is broken. There's also a measure of completion indicated in this action in that nothing remains from the old week into the new week in the transition from the 14th to the 15th day. Put another way, the sacrifice is finished. There's no lingering sacrifice, no further sacrifice that's needed. And our minds should rightly jump ahead to Christ's declaration on the cross. It is finished. And the once and for all sacrifice that his death achieved, even as Hebrews 10 teaches us. You know, and this is a helpful polemic against the Roman Catholic theology of the continuing or ongoing sacrifice of Christ that takes place, according to them, in the Eucharist. You know, Jesus is being sacrificed again and again. That's also part of the reason uh, that Jesus is still on the crucifix in Roman Catholic architecture, jewelry, etc. Jesus is being re-sacrificed again and again. And as Protestants, we believe Jesus is no longer on the cross. He did that once for all. Hence, our crucifixes are empty. Well, accompanying the sacrifice was unleavened bread and bitter herbs. What do these indicate? First of all, we should uh, understand that leaven is not necessarily bad. Uh, we might uh, think that given what we've heard elsewhere, even Jesus warning the disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, that leaven is automatically bad. But that's not always the case. Um, of course, he's mainly referring to their teaching, to the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But, but leaven, uh, more fundamentally, has to do with growth and development. Now, let's think back on what Egypt was known as. What was it famous for? It was the breadbasket of the world. And so it was known for its bread, particularly its sourdough recipes, which was closely guarded information. Well, Israel isn't to be taking Egypt with them, partaking of the leaven they've received there. It's not to be part of this event. See, the old world of Egypt must be cut off, left behind as they go into the new week, the new world, on the other side of the Passover. You cut off the sin, the sin in its youth, and move into new creation. See, in a sense, this was a form of fasting that prepared the people for what was to come. And perhaps we can explore this idea in more detail next week in the second part of the text where the instructions for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread are given. But this this fasting ties into the mention of the bitter herbs. It is quite possible that there's an allusion here to Israel's experience in Egypt as described in chapter 1 and verse 14, that their lives were made bitter with hard service. But we should ask the question, what's the opposite of bitter? Well, it's sweet. What was sweet in the Old Testament? and particularly symbolic, honey. And for you ladies that make sourdough bread, what do you have to do to the starter? We have to feed it. And what's one of the ingredients you may very well use for that? Sugar. Well, in the ancient world, what was the source of sugar? It was honey. But let's follow out the symbolism. Israel isn't to be taking the leaven of Egypt with them. They're to leave the Egyptian sourdough behind. 
And when they're in the wilderness, there won't be any honey there to feed the sourdough anyway. But where will honey be found? In the promised land, which is described as what? A land flowing with milk and honey. Honey is a sign of a new kingdom. See, sin is bitter. And the bitterness is a reminder of the life of enslavement to sin. But Christ and His Word, His law are sweeter than honey, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. And in keeping His commandments, there's great reward. So those who have been redeemed by Christ, we've been ushered into His new kingdom where we taste and see that the Lord is good and His commands are life for us. Verses 11 to 13. And like this you shall eat it with your loins being girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, a Passover to Yahweh. And I will pass over the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from man unto beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will ex- and, uh, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am Yahweh. And it will be to you a sign on the houses where you are there. And I will see the blood, and I will pass over you, and will not be to you a blow causing ruin when I strike in the land of Egypt. Verse 11, the manner of eating is described, and again, they're, they're, they're to be ready to leave. This is unique to this situation. As mentioned already, future observances of the Passover wouldn't be celebrated this way. Again, the posture of Jesus' disciples reclining at the table. Here, Israel is to have their long robes tucked into their belts. That's what girding up uh, their loins indicates, which means the long robes don't get in the way uh, for walking or running when you're in a hurry. Sandals on their feet obviously means they're ready to, to travel. They even have staff in hand. It's the same word used elsewhere of Moses and Aaron's staffs or rods and can certainly be thought of as a walking stick, but I can't help but think there's underlying shepherding imagery here associated with Israel as well. You know, they're ready to leave flocks and all. The noun form of the word uh, rendered Passover is echoed by the verbal form of it, literally uh, translated Passover, which is fitting. And you, and you hear it then in these verses. And the judgment is going to come on man, Adam, and beasts, who are also representatives of man. And so we have the decreation theme appear here again, particularly in relation to the sixth day of creation. Also, the text says firstborn. But that doesn't just mean babies. So any firstborn, regardless of age, is targeted. See, in many respects, we can think of this as a military victory that Yahweh is going to achieve. Because when you take out the firstborn, you're taking out the next generation of leaders, usually often the finest of men. Some time ago, I was listening to a podcast, maybe with uh, Daryl Cooper and, and Jocko, and he was making uh, Daryl Cooper was making the point that that uh, China doesn't want to get in a war, you know, with armies facing one another, troops versus troops, because they'd lose too many of their firstborn sons. And with you know the population controls China has enacted and the value they place on the eldest sons just in their culture, the risk would be too high. It's interesting to think about. Or in a, a recent movie that Deborah and I watched that involved a single battle fought by multiple kings, when some of the king's sons, their firstborn, their successors, were killed, then the, loss, the losses were even greater, and the battle not worth the price paid in the blood of their sons. Well, there's something of that here as well. And while we've noted at various times throughout the plagues, here in verse 12, Yahweh explicitly states that this plague in particular, uh, this is a strike against the gods of Egypt. And by wiping out servants and livestock, then part of the implication is that the Egyptian gods will starve. 
You know, the gods of the ancient pagan religions had plenty of human characteristics. Um, in the flood account recorded in the Epic of Gilgamesh, after the flood is over, why are all the gods gathered around uh, up the pish team when he makes sacrifices? Well, because they're hungry, not having eaten during the entirety of the flood. But what did the Israelites have in verse 13? They have the sign, the sign of blood. And when Yahweh sees that sign, he passes over. He doesn't bring destruction. He doesn't bring the blow against those under the blood. God is propitiated. His wrath is appeased and he turns away because there's a substitute to take the place of the Israelite firstborn. Yet again, we're pointed forward to Christ, even as John writes at the beginning of chapter 2 of of his letter. My My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So so God sees the blood, sees the substitute, and that leads us to our final verse for this morning in verse 14. And it will be this day to you for a memorial, and you shall hold a feast. It is a feast to Yahweh unto your generations, a statute forever, you shall hold a feast. So what's the emphasis in the text? It's it's, It's a feast. It's a festival through the nouns and verbs that are used. And that's, that's clearly conveyed. It's a celebration. It's also to be a statute, an ordinance, a law, a permanent rule that Israel will keep. You know, it's, it's a mandatory holiday, if you will. But it's also a memorial. And how do memorials primarily work, primarily work in Scripture? They're reminders for God, for Him to remember. You know, that was the case with the bow in the clouds after the flood, that God would see it and remember the everlasting covenant He's made with Noah and every living creature and all flesh, not to destroy all flesh with the flood. And the bow was the sign of the covenant. The Lord's Supper works in the same way. The bread and wine are signs for us of the covenant and memorials for God not to destroy us. That when He looks on us, He sees Jesus. He sees our substitute, our Passover lamb. Well, there's been... Plenty for us to already think about in relation to our faith and our calling as the church today. But let's consider one or two other final points. Consider that the verb uh, for eat is used seven times in verses 1 to 14. And while this this might seem like a necessary detail since the Passover is about eating a meal, celebrating a feast... There's an undeniable level of participation and activity that's required by Israel. Yes, Yahweh is the one who is going to destroy Egypt. But that doesn't mean that Israel isn't active, particularly in their obedience to what they've been commanded to do. In similar fashion, we must eat. And we are to be active and not just watch, not just think about the truth or simply understand it. our, Our faith is not just all here. But to take what God does into ourselves and then imitate Him. You know, one of the ways that we do this is by what we do here in worship, particularly in our participation at the table. We eat and drink Jesus, and if you are what you eat, then you become more like Him. Furthermore, we're called to participation in the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, and He uses us for His purposes in the world, for the building up of the church, the spread of the gospel, and the increasing of the kingdom of Christ. 
you know, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is replete with Exodus themes. But in chapter 2, he tells them that they were dead in trespasses and sins. And what can dead men do? Nothing. Verse 4, but God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. You know, it's God who gives life. He rescues. He takes us out of the old and into the new. But then what does Paul say a few verses later? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So clearly you don't save yourself. No one does. No one ever has. Israel didn't save themselves in Egypt. Well, what does Paul say we've been saved to do? Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We're to be active, walking in the life to which we're called by God, the things he's prepared for us to do. And so let us, let's take the first part of the, of, of the story of the institution of the Passover and find greater encouragement for our own faith in Christ, our Passover lamb, and the new beginnings that are afforded to us in him. See, there's a sense that we celebrate a weekly Passover. And if we've had a particularly rough week or are struggling in some form or fashion, you know, then we get to come here again and again and start anew in Christ, receiving fresh supplies of grace at this feast, this weekly festival. E.B. Pusey, British theologian and leader of the Oxford movement, once remarked, Because perseverance is so difficult, even when supported by the grace of God, Thence is the value of new beginnings. For new beginnings are the life of perseverance. And it's here in the congregation, in this assembly of God's people, you know, that, that we receive the, the honey of Christ's word, which brightens and strengthens us for the work in his kingdom. And where we receive Christ himself and find new assurance that we come under the protection of his blood. So let us come to the table of our Savior who tabernacled among us, who's prepared the feast for his bride, who is building his house, his church, beautifying her with blessings. And let us celebrate the great salvation that is ours in him. Let us pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. And indeed, may it be sweet to us this day as we taste of your goodness and grace. May we come to your table with expectation and with joy and with hearts ready to celebrate the great salvation that is ours. Indeed, we thank you for your good, your good gifts to us and your continuing blessings upon your people. And pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.